Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Thanks so much for gathering. Uh, thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, we've never been introduced. My name is Jamie. It's my joy to be one of the pastors here. It's my joy to open up God's word with you all. And um, yeah, if you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for uh, joining us as well, for tuning in, for uh, allowing us to be part of your morning. Uh, friends, I hope you all had a, a great Thanksgiving. I hope you are recovering from likely uh, eating too much, um, all of those, those good things. Things. Um, but what a, a joy to, to have a day, on the one hand, that, that is set aside each year to remember the blessings that we have, despite, that doesn't mean there's no pain or hurt, any of that. But also what a gift, friends, that we have that every Sunday, one of the great rhythms of the church is we get to gather together and we get to be reminded of our covenant-making, our covenant-keeping God who pursues us, that is here to, to meet with us this morning. Um, and so what a joy that is and a gift that we get to partake in, not just once a year, but literally this is something we have access to every day of the year. And we get to come together and do this collectively in a communal sense every Sunday. Well, this morning, uh, we are wrapping up a series uh, that we began, uh, this is week 15 of a series. We began this fall and it's taken us all the way to today. And then next week we'll start our Advent uh, series. And so really looking forward uh, to that, but have enjoyed this series called Creation and Chaos looking to understand our origin story, which means we've been studying the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, uh, believing that in this particular chapter, it lays out for us. Like if we understand this, we understand the trajectory of the whole storyline of the Bible, but it is the thing as well that helps us make sense then of like your life and my life and what we're called to as the, the church. And it lays out things about like just the beauty and the wonder and just the glory of creation but also deals with the reality of the brokenness and the heartache and the hurt. And one of the things I'll read to you in just a moment will be a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he just talks about just the honesty of the scriptures. Like there's no other book that paints such an accurate picture. But before we get into that, we wanna hear from God's word this morning. Uh, so I wanna invite you to turn in the scriptures to Genesis chapter 10. We're gonna look at Genesis 10, which is this long genealogy, which means you get to hear me read a list of names that I'll probably struggle to pronounce. So just extend grace uh, to me. We'll look at that. And it sets up then where we'll spend the bulk of our time, which is Genesis 11 verses one to nine, which is known, many of you are probably familiar with it, called the Tower of Babel. And that that story. So there are Bibles in the pews. I'd love for you to have the scriptures in front of you. You can also, if you brought your own Bible or you can scan the QR code and that'll bring up uh, a little menu on your phone that says sermon notes. You can click that. The text is there. You can also access that at this is CP dot church and click the little next steps icon. Uh, I realize this is a little bit longer section um, to read through, but I'm still going to invite you. If you would, if you're able, please stand as I read God's word. Genesis 10 and then Genesis 11 verses one to nine. We pick up the story after the flood, after we read of Noah and his sons, and now we get a list of genealogy. It's this table of nations that's referred to. It's a way of showcasing what were the, the known nations in the time that this was written. It's a way of saying, here's where all the people came from. All right, even though I'll struggle to pronounce their names. Here we go. Genesis 10. Beginning verse one, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Hapheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. First, we have the sons of Hapheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. And from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans, 
in their nations. Pay attention to those words there as they'll repeat throughout. Then we have the sons of Ham. We have Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Rama, and Sabdeca. The sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. And Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kalushim, from whom the Philistines came, in case you were wondering, and Kaphtorim, all right? Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Geza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. And these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And now to Shem also, the father of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. And to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yoktan. And Yoktan fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazar, Mavareth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Yoktan. Still with me? All right. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha and the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, there we go. Amen. Yes. Now, Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9, less names in this one. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for that little bit extra long reading. All of the these names, all right, I'm sure you've got that all memorized, chapter 10. But here's what I want to, to point out. As we get into this, all right, there's some things that we'll come back to to refer to in Genesis 10 as we study more specifically Genesis 11 because it sets some of that context. But I want to read to you, there's this great work I've enjoyed studying as part of this 
sermon series, and it's by the late great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he wrote a book called The Gospel in Genesis. Really, it's a collection of many of his sermons that were put into kind of book form over the years. And he's got this wonderful chapter on the Tower of Babel. But even as he's talking about that, he's talking about the scope of all of Genesis 1 through 11, what we have been studying together. And I want to read this to you because it lays out for us a bit of a recap of like, oh, where have we been and why is this so important? And if you're like, hey, this is my first week here, like I think it helps even just catch you up to speed about like what this has been about. So he writes this, in our study of the opening chapters of Genesis, our whole contention has been that the Bible, far from being remote from life, is the only book that really does deal with life as it is. The only book that gives us anything approximating to an adequate answer to the various questions that we all feel most must of necessity be faced at a time like this. Why is the world as it is? That is the basic question. Why the confusion? Why the trouble, the discord, the misunderstanding with all the consequent unhappiness and misery and wretchedness? Now, it's not to say that there's not beauty This is a series called Creation and Chaos. And we hold both of these things in tension that there is great beauty, that we still are people made in the image and likeness of God. And though there's been the fall, there's still things that just speak of God's glory and his grace. And we see that. And yet we also recognize, and there's this question that sort of haunts us, like why is the world the way that it is? And I believe what Lloyd Jones is saying is so accurate that this word, this book contains the most honest description, the most honest answer to both the beauty, but also the brokenness. And in answer to that question, why is the world as it is? It forces us to wrestle with this question, which gets at the heart of the answer to that. And what we're gonna see here, not only throughout these opening 11 chapters, but like kind of summarized here in chapter 11, the question then is this, will we live our lives apart from God? There has been a very accurately a very accurate depiction, this kind of painting, if you will, throughout these opening chapters of what it looks like when men and women live their lives, not surrendered to God and to his will, but apart from God, a movement toward, I wanna do what I want to do. And as Lloyd-Jones says, this is not just a book for back then, but it's for here. And I think we will see that if we will open ourselves up this morning and say, Lord, teach me, show me, reveal to me, like where my heart still gets Stuck, how am I living in ways that are apart from you? How am I still trying to do it on my own? Because what if we left here today with just a clearer sense of like, oh, I don't have to try and attain. It has all been attained for me. What if you went into this stretch, this end of the year, which is filled with so much busyness and all the things that can weigh us down amidst all the joy and all of that. And we just rested in the fact that, oh, We've been named by the God of the universe. What would that look like? Well, this text is gonna help us in that. In this text, Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on, let me read just a quote from just a little bit later in that chapter. He says, what is your view of life today? We are all expert planners, are we not? Like it took some planning to pull off Thanksgiving, all right? So you're an expert planner, all right? Those people he's speaking of too in chapter 11 here, they were planners. They drew the specifications of the city. They had it all worked out. And we all do that in life, do we not? You have your plans, your future life and career mapped out. You know what you want to do. And where does God come in? Is the plan made under God or is it made apart from him? 
the one lesson of this chapter is that if you plan your life without God at the center, it will come to nothing, nothing at all. And do you and I believe that? Do we do more than give lip service to that reality? But do we allow the truth of that to sink in and then to shape everything? You know, oh, there must be something more. And so this morning, I wanna look at really three movements of sorts that we see in chapter 11, right? There's gonna be this move that stops. We'll look at briefly in verses one to two. Then we'll look at this move up in verses three to four. And then this movement down in verses five to nine, making reference back to chapter 10 in certain spots. But first the move stops. As we look back over Genesis 11, one to two, you get these words. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the East, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. So a couple things, if you're somebody that picks up on details, one of the things you might've noticed, all right? And if you didn't pick up on the details, no shame, all right? We can all miss these things. But uh, it's interesting that as I read through chapter 10, it spoke of their lands with their own language, their own clans, their own nations. And yet here in chapter 11, it says one language. Scholars have pointed out that we are not to read 10 and 11 in a chronological sense. We tend to read things that way, like, well, this came first and then this. But what we have here is Genesis 11 is telling us a story of what happens when people try and live their lives apart from God. And then chapter 10 really is like the spreading out, the dispersing in all the particular nations, all the people groups, all the clans that make up what would have been the known world at that time. And we'll talk about the significance of that a little bit later in this sermon. But just in case you're wondering, it's like, hey, Genesis 11 is describing things before. So there's one language. Now, look with me. It says they migrated from the east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. The reason I want us to see just initially the movement that stops is this couple things. There's a couple clues, couple like hyperlinks in the text and the book of Genesis has been doing this so far, right? And the, really the whole scriptures, there's so many links back and forth to different things. And we have heard throughout this, that there's this movement east and the movement east represents away from the presence and the will of God. It's a way to symbolize, it's sort of shorthand for saying, oh, that's a group of people trying to live apart from God. And so Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden and they're east of Eden. And we get, continue to see this progression. And it's a way of just cluing us in, oh, oh, that movement is not good. But it's not just that they keep moving east, it's that it says they settle, that the movement comes to a screeching halt. If you look over the story, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin enters, God tells humanity, right? Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. Like it's to spread out. It's to take what is the garden as the prototype and expand it into all of the, the wilderness, subdue all of the chaos, bring forth God's purpose and his will. Like that's, that's our purpose in life, summarized. That continues to this day but things get out of hand and there's rebellion and there's sin to the point that God wipes it all out and functionally like starts over after the, the flood and then says to Noah and his sons, what? Be fruitful and multiply. Don't settle, keep going beyond the move. But it tells us here, right, that they settled. So right away, there's just these clues that are given in the text, like something isn't right. So that's all I want us to see. That first movement is just kind of come to a screeching halt right? They're moving away from the presence of God and then they stop. And now there's this focus on the move up. So we'll look at verses three to four here. Verse three says this, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks 
and burned them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and this bitumen for mortar. So a couple things in there. One, that language of come, let us. If you've been part of this series, or if you are familiar with some of the opening chapters of the Bible, like in Genesis 1 and 2, that phrase, those words, let us, like probably like rings a bell. It's like, oh, I've heard that before. And it was in reference to God saying, let us make man in our image, that God is gonna create the Imago Dei, his image bearers, that's you and me and every person that's ever lived on the planet is living now and will live in the future. All have worth, value, and dignity made in the image and likeness of God, which means what? It means part of who you are is you embody the creativity and the ingenuity of our God, a God who likes to fashion things and create things and take the raw materials of the world and say, ooh, what could I do with this? Like that's part of how we image God, right? I don't know if you thought about it that, that way, but if you put a recipe together or you just at least like opened up a box of, you know, or like a bag of rolls, I don't know what I'm doing in the kitchen, clearly, right? Um, but like, there's an, a level of creativity of taking raw materials of putting things together. Like, look, we're gonna produce this thing. Like that is a picture of like what we're invited into. And so at one level it says, come, let us make. And what are they doing? It tells us that they're in a part of the world where there likely wasn't like this quarry almost of, of rocks to grab a hold of for building projects, but they're gonna make a brick, not just a brick. They're gonna build, they're gonna make brick after brick after brick. They're gonna take the raw material of the clay. They're gonna fashion something. So for just a moment, to really understand what's going on, let's, let's talk about the brick a bit more, right? Because we can read verse three and be like, okay, great, they built bricks, right? I mean, there's some that looks like on the walls over here, right? Like, okay, we, we get it, not that big of a deal. But oh, if we skip over this, we lose how revolutionary this would have been in that time and place. Like this is the technology of the day right? This is Steve Jobs walking out and be like, today I present the brick, right? Like it's that sort of moment that we, we miss it here. Like this is the keynote presentation of like, look what humanity has created because what it allowed, I mean, think about it for a moment. Somebody along the way noticed one day that the clay on the, of the ground, when the heat of the sun, right? began to just kind of beat upon the earth there and that clay would begin to harden. And somebody thought to themselves like, hey, I wonder if we can harness that. And I know we're out in this plain where there's not a lot of rocks and we have things that we wanna build, but what if we can take this ground? What if we take this clay and we can allow it to be with this natural resource that is the sun and allow it to heat up? And what if we shaped that and we molded that? And rather than even in a place where there were lots of rocks that are all uneven and different sizes and you're trying to stack that all together, what if we could make it where they're level and they're sort of squared off and we could stack them one upon another? Do you imagine like the person who figured this out, he would have been calling the neighbors together and be like, look what I've made. And they'd have been like, oh my goodness, what if we all start in on this? You're seeing the best of humanity come together. So don't miss that in this, right? We just like, well, it's a brick, like whatever. But in that day, whoo, it's like gather around, like this is what you would have been excited about. And so, so far, so good. They're talking, there's this talk about this brick. They're like, so come, let us make bricks, right? And we'll burn them thoroughly so they're gonna harden up so they can be used for building, can be used for all kinds of purposes. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
And so it is the technological advancement of the day. Things they're cultivating, they're creating, they're imaging God. Now, again, we hold these things in tension, don't we? There's beauty there, but there's also a brokenness. Because in the same way we're gonna see as we get into verse four, we too have great technology. There are great things that the Lord has given to us, things to steward well, but we also can use those things in ways that don't bring life. We can use the gifts that the Lord has given to us in ways that don't keep us dependent on him, but rather have us living apart from him. So how do you and I approach the good gifts that we've been given? Maybe even practically, right? This is not a a message so much about phones, but like, hey, that brick-shaped thing that you probably have in your pocket right now, right? Like, how is that thing being used? There's extreme relevance to our time and place from this text. So it forces us to kind of ask the question like, okay, so like, then what's the problem? Because if we stopped at verse three, it's like, and this is amazing. Humanity like at its best in many ways, it seems. But there's some clues. And one of them goes back to chapter 10 that I want to look at in verses eight to 10. Um, You heard me struggle through that list of names, right? Most of them were just this person, this person, this person, and they had this son and this son and this son. But in verses eight to 10 of chapter 10, it gives us a little description. It it describes, it names one of the men, but then actually has some commentary uh, about him. And there's some things that we're meant to see because this particular one is tied to Babel. And Babel becomes what is known as Babylon. Babylon is the enemy of the people of God. You see that as you read the story. In verses eight to 10, it says this, Cush, and Cush comes from the line of Ham. Ham was, uh, was the line that was, was cursed. We looked at that last week, right? And so you're beginning to see some of this play out. Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, not because he did his work for the Lord and that the Lord was pleased with him, but it was saying, no, the Lord recognized like, yeah, this man's a legit mighty, mighty warrior, right? In the beginning of his kingdom, it says, was Babel, Erech, Achad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. It goes on to tell us that he was the one that actually then after the Tower of Babel ceases, it tells us that he moved on. And guess what else he founded? Assyria, the great city of Nineveh. And so there's, some, there's a clue right here as we get, right before we get into verse four, that like, oh, there's something sinister that's afoot, that there's something that's happening here that Genesis 10 speaks to for a moment when it ties this man to the work in Babel in this move up. And so Nimrod says a mighty man, that word, that phrase there, mighty man, is Hebrew word gibor. And it showed up already in our study. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we were in Genesis chapter six. um, And I will just read to you a couple of verses from the beginning of chapter six um, that speaks of these mighty men. And it speaks of where they came from. And if you're like, oh, does the Bible have some confusing kind of weird stuff in it? Hey, chapter six, I mean, it's it's all there, right? Um, It says, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God 
saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Some of you are like, are we really going back to these verses? Yes, just for a moment, okay? Um, so you have these fallen, the sons of God referring to these fallen angels of God, then begin to have this union with the daughters of mankind. And they took as their wives and they chose. And then it, if we drop down, it says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide a man forever. He is flesh. And then it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, which is interesting, before the flood and after the flood, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were, what's the offspring referred to? The mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. There's another one now that has shown up. Somehow this problem is replicating itself again. In Nimrod, we are introduced. It's a way of saying, oh, this mighty man. And that maybe you're, there's a note in my Bible that says, or he began to be a mighty man on the earth. He's not the first but it's a way of cluing us in like, oh, there's something sinister that's happening. Like there's a, there's a seed of the serpent that, that's playing out here. And he goes and he's part of this construction. He's leading the charge of the bricks and the innovation, but he's gonna do it in a way that doesn't lead to a life that is lived under glad submission to God. And so then we get to verse four, it says this, they said, come, let us. So there's that language again, let's do more work. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So right away, even that line, let us build ourselves. How often do we get caught up even in the good things in this world with, let us build for myself, my name, my family, less concern about other people. The Lord tells us whether you eat, drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It doesn't say, let us build a city unto the Lord where people can get, no, no, no. Let us build the city for ourselves. And this says a tower with its top in the heavens. There's this movement up but it's not a movement the way that they should be moving. They have stopped, they have settled. They're not continuing to be on the move as God told them, but they've camped out here. Now they have the innovation of this brick and they're using it not to bring honor and glory to God, but rather to transgress the boundaries that God has put in place. They are not to be up there in the heavenly realm. Where do we see this on repeat so far in the story, right? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, do not transgress that boundary. And yet they reach for the fruit and they transgress that boundary. You are to, to love and care for your fellow image bearers. And yet a brother kills another, his brother in Genesis chapter four right? The sons of God are not to take, there's supposed to be this union between a man and his wife and the sons of God, the fallen angels are not to transgress and take the daughters of man, but they do. And on and on and on it goes and it's sin and it's rebellion and it's violence that's taking place with this desire to like, no, I want to do it on my own. And so when it says there, it's top in the heavens, it's this way of cluing us in. It's a picture here. This tower is described. It's trying to transgress a boundary. It's trying to get somewhere to achieve something that they'll actually never be able to do. And so I don't know how you think of this. I think as a kid growing up and I'd hear the story of the Tower of Babel, right? Like I, I probably had more of like this cylinder, maybe like leaning Tower of Pisa that didn't lean, right? Like maybe that, that's kind of like how I would picture that. 
But as people really study this stuff, what they're saying, what really is being described here, what would have existed in that time and that place and competing worldviews, we've talked about other nations, right? It should be understood that this is referring to a ziggurat, right? Something that would look like this, that you would have had this sort of, what would have been almost like this, this shape that would have been like, almost like a pyramid with the top cut off. And then there were these large stairs, these stairwells that would be built, these staircases, and you would go up and they would construct these things. And really what I want you to see here, friends, is this is a picture of religion. When it says to its top in the heavens, it's trying to get to the place to achieve the blessing. The mindset of religion is this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. What Genesis chapter 11, verse four is saying, you got a group of people they're like, we're gonna settle here and we are gonna try and get to the heavenly realm. We're gonna do enough. We're gonna achieve. We're gonna try and get the blessing of the gods. And it's this stairway up to heaven and we'll transgress any of these boundaries. We think we've got to do this. And they're operating with this mindset that we do, we obey, we do these things in order to get the blessing. But the gospel is no, 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 no. Is that I'm accepted through nothing that I can do, nothing that you can do, but solely through the grace and mercy of God. And therefore I obey. Religion says I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And here's the reality. I can never perfectly obey. I'm always in this state of rebellion. And so are you. That's the trajectory. Genesis 1 through 11 is laying that out so clearly for us. Like us living apart from God, we are never able to be obedient. No one does the right thing. It looks like maybe Noah's going to, and then he's like drunk and naked and passed out in his tent, right? That's what we looked at last week. Like nobody's doing the right thing. Everybody's in a state of rebellion. They're supposed to be multiplying and they settle. And now they're like, we're gonna achieve. We're gonna actually get this figured out. And it's this mindset of religion. Do you see that? And these ziggurats were referred to as the gate or the gateway to the gods. They thought that they could get there. And then coupled with that and closely related to that is it tells us, right? Let us make a name for ourselves. Friends, can we be honest? We are so driven by this. This is an ancient, ancient text, but it speaks to my heart. And my guess is it speaks to your heart if you're open and honest with the reality of your life and your struggles and the insecurities that we all have. Like every single one of us, if we're not paying attention, we'll use the good gifts, the bricks that the Lord has given to us in this time, in this place. And we will use it to live. If we're not careful, we will use it to live apart from God. We'll use it to live as isolated individuals thinking that we can achieve and we will do it to make a name for ourselves. And we will engage in the good gifts that the Lord has given, like working, like a career, a job, school, all of that but that can just be using the bricks that we've been given to make a name for ourselves. I gotta get into this school. I gotta get these grades. I gotta be known for this. I gotta get this job. I gotta advance. Do you see the, right? What do we say? Climb the corporate ladder. Friends, the storyline of the Bible, right? Our symbol, it is not a stairway. It is not a ladder. It is a cross. It is God condescending to us and dying for us. Like there's nothing for us to achieve, but we get into this mindset, a name for ourselves. We do it through our career. We can do it through relationships. How am I doing in my marriage? How am I doing as a parent? How am I doing as a friend? Are those good gifts? Should we live in community? Yes, but can we make that ultimate? 
right? I'm not anti-technology, right? I love my technology. I love all, all this stuff, right? I'm not anti-social media. There's, but like anything, I think we hold these things in tension. What's some of the beauty, but what's also some of the brokenness? Can we at least be honest that some of what we're drawn to is making a name for ourselves? Like how easy it is to get caught up, right? As there are literally people being hired to grab your attention, to make it addictive. Like that's one of the things that are built into it. Again, I'm not anti these things, but let's at least pay attention to the fact that these things matter. And so we can get into these habits and what do we do? We begin to respond when little dopamine hits around like, ooh, did this get liked? Did this get commented on? Did this get shared? I read an article that the guy who, I know it's not called Twitter anymore, but whatever, Elon's renamed it, right? X, I guess, right? Okay, anyway, so um, listen, the guy who invented the idea of retweeting something like, ooh, somebody posted this and now you can share it. And that the ability to go viral, he said, looking back on that, he's like, that was like handing a loaded gun to a four-year-old. He's reflecting on his life's work and he's like, dang, not sure that was a good idea. So this is an ancient text, but I, I think it has some stuff to speak to us today, make a name for ourselves. I've referenced these before, but they're worth mentioning, I think, for a moment. Like if you like some sports analogies in that, right? If you, if you, if you don't, I've got another one for you, but all right. You go like old school Rocky, right? Like original Rocky movie. And at the end, he's got the big boxing match, right? With Apollo Creed. He doesn't, he's not even talking about winning. Remember what he says? I just want to go the distance because then I'll know that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Or like, ah, I wasn't into Rocky, but I like Rudy, right? Um, what, about, what about that one? Kid that wants to, walks on, I'm gonna play for Notre Dame. I mean, they're terrible, but anyway. Anyway, um, so no, um, my football coming out. But anyway, um, but he says, right? Um, he's just like, he's commenting one time and he's just like, I just wanna run onto that tunnel. Then I'll know that I've arrived, that I'm somebody. He wants his dad and his brothers to be proud of him. This is ancient stuff and this is, this is our stuff. Make a name for ourselves. But maybe you're not into Rocky or Rudy. Um, let's talk about Ronald for a moment. Uh, Ronald uh, was the character of a 1980s teen romance comedy called Can't Buy Me Love. So we'll go old school here for a moment, right? So if you're not into the sports analogies, I'm not saying I recommend this. This is like PG-13 in the 80s, which who knows what that means today. But anyway, um, all right. Uh, but in this particular story, Ronald, it's, it's Patrick Dempsey. You're like, oh yeah, the guy from Grey's Anatomy, that guy, right? Um, and so as a, he's, he plays a upcoming senior um, and he's this nerdy, lanky, like the kid that's all into um, not sports basically. Uh, and he's like, he's, he's been, he has a yard business and he saved up all summer a thousand dollars to buy the telescope of his dreams. Like that's who he is, okay? But he lives next door to the prettiest girl in school who's the captain of the cheerleading squad, right? Um, and in this, this particular film, as he goes to the mall one day to purchase this telescope that he's mowed yard after yard after yard just to be able to, to, be able to purchase, right? He sees there across the way, literally as he's looking through the telescope in this kind of creeper stalker, stalker sort of way across the mall, he sees Cindy Mancini, right? And she, he can tell that she's flustered and she's begging and pleading with a sales associate at the store across the mall. And what she's begging and pleading about is she has this dress that costs a thousand dollars. It's made out of suede, all right? And her mother told her, under no circumstances are you to borrow that. But sometimes teenage daughters borrow their mom's things, apparently, right? Um, and so you had this, this thing that gets taken out of the closet. She wears it to a party. 
and then somebody spills red wine all over it. And it costs $1,000 to replace and she doesn't have it. And she's like, I'm, my mom's gonna kill me. And then Ronald sees an opportunity and he walks across the mall and he goes up to her and says, hey, I'm your neighbor. And she's like, yeah, you mow my yard, right? Um, and, uh, and they have this moment and he's like, here, here's $1,000 cash. He's like, I was gonna use it for this telescope. I'll give it to you. You can buy this on one condition. For the first month of school, you've got to pretend like you're my girlfriend. And at first it seemingly changes everything for him. Like all of her cool gets transferred to him. But as the story plays out, you see, it's not real flourishing. It's a lie. He loses the true friendships that he actually really has. It all falls apart. But that drive there, right? Like, I just, I want a name. I want some recognition. I need a, I wanna have a, some sort of legacy or reputation. Like that's what they're facing here. And the same thing is present in my heart. And my guess is if you're honest, the same thing is present in your heart. And I don't know the particulars of it, but pay attention, right? Like what ziggurats are you building? What are the things that you're taking the good things that the Lord has given you and saying like, ooh, I'm gonna stack that. I'm gonna build that. And I'm gonna achieve that. And what if the Lord is saying, hey, how about you stop constructing that? And how about you allow me to shape your life and quit trying to live apart from me and trying to achieve a name on your own? What if you allowed me to name you? And so friends, as we look at these last few verses that point us ahead, just want us just to be encouraged in this. This is a story, yes, about what happens in the opening chapters of the scriptures, but it's painting the picture, it's setting the trajectory for all the scriptures and it's setting the trajectory of who we are to be as a church. So hear this, there's a move down. In verse five, it says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And scholars point out, which I think is kind of funny that some of the language that's being used here, it's like, yes, God is condescending and we're gonna talk about that and the beauty of that and the ri how rich this is theologically but it's also meant to be funny. There's, there's also some irony here. There's also a little bit, oh, the Lord came down. Literally it's telling us, oh, that big gigantic tower that they thought was so impressive, that's gonna be their lasting legacy and make a name for themselves. The Lord's like, huh? Like, what is that, right? Like he has to come down and be like, oh, that's, what you, that's cute, right? That's literally what's taking place. So we make things and they're amazing and what humanity has done over the, I mean, there's some amazing mind blowing things in the world, right? And yet compared to the creator, it's like, oh, he has to come down, that's cute. And it's telling us like, oh, we can get all puffed up and full of ourselves. And it says, the Lord came down and he saw. And then he, he tells us, I'll just read these last verses. Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Not because he's thinking, oh, they're gonna derail my plans. But he's like, this is just gonna lead to more chaos and disorder. This is not what I want for them. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible. So come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So he's gonna bring this confusion, but friends, he's doing this. This is an act of God's grace. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel literally meaning confusion, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Babel, they thought, right? They referred to as the surrounding nations would refer to that literally, that tower as the gateway of the gods. And they're like, no, no, it just means confusion. And so as we close, I want us to just see this. 
And I'm going to read quite a few just passages just to like help immerse us in the story. And even as we get ready to head into Advent next week, to immerse us in the story of the God who is moving us in the story that continues, right, from dispersion to deliverance, who's moving us from chaos into clarity. And so it tells us at the end of chapter 10, right, these are the clans of the sons of Noah. It's telling us these are the, what were regarded as the 70 nations, the known nations of the world at that time. All right, and they were spread about on the earth after the flood. But God's not finished yet. God's got work for you and me. He's looking for partners. And if we kept reading, we would get to chapter 12 and there we would meet a man named Abram who would become Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all you, the and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, it's one man being drawn out to become one family, one nation, not so that it would terminate on itself and get insular, but would rather would bless all. Like God is doing this work. There's a reason he wants people not just settling. He wants it dispersed. He wants all the nations to be blessed. This is the heart of our God. And as we get ready to enter into the Advent season, right? When you think about all the confusion of Babel, God brings clarity where their words were misunderstood. John 1 tells us, and the word, how about God coming down, the movement that we need. God came down, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Our God shows up to bring that clarity, to speak that grace, to embody that grace, to embody that truth, to speak that truth. That's what we need. But then Jesus as he's getting ready to ascend back to the father. He's like, friends, I've got work for you because God's always looking for partners to join him in his mission. And so he gathers his disciples in Acts chapter one. He says, listen, heaven is gonna be opened again. And he said, yeah, heaven came down in Jesus, but heaven's gonna come down in the Holy Spirit. And he's like, just wait, just hang tight for a moment. Don't settle permanently, but just stay here because then you're gonna be dispersed again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Yes, starting here in Jerusalem, then to the surrounding area of Judea, then to Samaria. And guess what? All the way to the ends of the earth. God's heart is always for the nations. And so they wait. And then we get to Genesis 2. Hang with me. We just got a couple of verses left, right? Acts chapter 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven. Heaven is breaking in again, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Heaven is coming down. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. They began to speak in other languages. Babel is being reversed. That's what's happening right here. That God is bringing the nations, he's bringing people. They've not heard the good news of Jesus and now they're all hearing it in their language. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. There's no confusion anymore. The gospel is going forth. We drop down just a couple of verses later and Peter gets up. Peter, the one who had betrayed Jesus, the one who was a failure, the one who couldn't ascend, right? Couldn't to go to the next rung on the ladder. It's like, nope, nope, can't do it. But God comes to him and God empowers him. And then he gets up and he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There's a whole new reality that's broken in. And he bears witness to that. And then it tells us, now that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And notice what Peter says to them. He doesn't say try harder. He doesn't try and say ascend, right? He doesn't say achieve this level of consciousness. He says, repent. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Heaven will come down and enter your life because God's looking for partners. This story of Genesis one through 11 is telling us, yes, we are in great need. And so God condescended to us and Jesus died in your place and in my place. But it's not just so that we would sit back. Genesis one through 11, this whole storyline ultimately pointing to Jesus is that we would be part of this mission. We get to be the church together. We get to tell the story of God's first advent and his promised second advent. What a great gift we get to do. And it's repent to move in a new direction. Will we live apart from God or will we live surrendered to God? May we be a church that is characterized by ongoing continued repentance. Oh Lord, I'm sorry, I went this way, I'm coming back. Thank you for continuing to pursue me, to love me, to extend your grace to me. Would you use me? I want to live individually and communally as a people surrendered for his mission. That's what this story is about. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy. God, thank you for arranging things in such a way, God, that you get the glory, but we experience deep joy as we live not apart from you, but we live surrendered to you. To help us to trust you in that. God, I pray for any here this morning who have not trusted you. I pray that today would be the day that they would repent and that they would come to trust in your saving grace. But God, by the power of your spirit, your kindness, lead all of us in repentance as we get ready to come to this table, God. And we remember Jesus, your broken body and your shed blood. Lead us in repentance, remind us and show us again what it looks like to live a life not apart from you, but deeply connected to you, like branches connected to the vine. So keep us close to you. Thank you for your faithfulness, even when we are faithless. God, thank you for these opening chapters of the scriptures. Thank you for the story that they introduce us to. More importantly, thank you they introduce us to the storyteller, to the author of the story. God, may you be glorified as we worship you, as we continue to worship you now. May we experience a deep and abundant